Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 11, verses 11 to 14, which can be found on page 1090 in the Pew Bibles. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear to him in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. It's a great privilege to be here at Knox this, uh, this morning. We were here yesterday for a good part of the day, and as Pastor Phyllis said, we had a wonderful day of just celebrating God's goodness and his concern, his mission for the world, and our part in that. Now, this celebration is connected to our history as OMF. Uh, This year we are celebrating 150 years of God's faithfulness to us as an organization starting back in 1865 when Hudson Taylor on Brighton Beach responded to God's call and began with the founding of the China Inland Mission. And uh, some of you may not realize that Knox has a very special part in that history because the first North American group of CIM missionaries to go out to China were commissioned from Knox. Uh, in 1888 and sent out by Hudson Taylor and there's some great stories out of that. So we intentionally wanted to celebrate that 150th anniversary here at Knox, but we wanted also to celebrate not OMF or Hudson Taylor, but God's faithfulness. And so yesterday was a collaborative missions focus, not particularly focused on OMF, but focused on what God has done, particularly with East Asia's peoples. And I'm so grateful to, as Pastor Phyllis said, the Knox Missions Hub that really coordinated and quarterbacked that. We had seven different mission agencies that were part of that. The gym was full of people and and about 800 Chinese buns. So there was good food and uh, lots of opportunities for conversations. And we want to thank you uh, for your partnership with us. Uh, Churches like Knox here in this city are so important, not just for you, they're important for God's kingdom and his glory in this city. And uh, groups like OMF and other agencies like Wycliffe and WEC, we pray for you and we desire that God's name would be glorified in this church and in other key flagship churches in this city to hold God's name clear in this city as it grows and changes. So we are grateful for the partnership here. I have the privilege of introducing uh, Reverend Dr. Jamie Taylor, most affectionately known amongst, by most of us as just Jamie. Uh, Jamie is the great-great-grandson of Hudson Taylor, but much more important, I think, is that Jamie has a passion to follow God's calling in this generation with a commitment to China and China's peoples. Uh, He and his family have lived in East Asia all their lives. Uh, His wife Mimi is here and will be singing uh, a little bit later, and there are three children. Uh, they, They speak Mandarin in the home. The family is fluent in Mandarin and English. And Jamie is one of our uh, key resource people and directors relating to what God is doing in China and also through China to the rest of the world. So it's a privilege to introduce Jamie to you. What a wonderful truth, is that not? Nothing can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The title of my message this morning is Four Days That transformed missions, four days that transformed missions. If you have the chance to study mission history, 
Through its course, there will be events in which transformation was brought about. I think of the history of the mission agency that I serve with, OMF International, originally called the China Inland Mission. And if you're familiar with that history, you will know that it was on June 25th, 1865, that Hudson Taylor, my great-great-grandfather, stood on a beach in southern England in the city of Brighton and prayed a simple prayer that God would raise up 24 willing and skillful workers to go with him to China, to go with him and his family to the inland parts of China, for there resided some three, three, 350 million Chinese that were still outside of the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a transformational moment. Two days later, he deposited 10 pounds in the London and County Bank under the name China Inland Mission. And of course, there are many other transformational events in mission history. But this morning, I'd like to take our thoughts back to a transformational event that we find in the New Testament, that we find in the book of Acts, that we find here in the 10th and the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. We can refer to it as the Cornelius Incident. Incidentally, I believe that it was very, very significant indeed because if you were to carefully read through the book of Acts, you will find, except for the martyrdom of Stephen, which is told to us there in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, Luke actually takes about 68 verses to tell us about Stephen and his martyrdom, beginning actually toward the end of chapter 6 and then right through chapter 7, 68 verses, except for the martyrdom of Stephen. Luke actually spends the most space describing for us the Cornelius incident. And I believe that in and of itself is an indication of the importance of this event, not only in Peter's life, but in the life of the New Testament church. It was a transformational moment for the New Testament church, as well as certainly for, for Peter. Incidentally, let me just quickly explain the four days. You might be wondering where exactly that came from. If you're familiar actually with the 10th chapter, you will know that actually the 10th chapter of the book of Acts covers four days. The first eight verses of chapter 10 are the first day, and you'll remember that Luke tells us of a vision that Cornelius had. It was during the time of prayer where an angel of the Lord appeared to Cornelius and told him to send people to Joppa to look for a man called Peter to bring him back to Caesarea Philippi. That was the first day. And then if you look down from verse 9, actually, to verse 23, the first half of verse 23, you will read of the second day. And there Luke describes for us something of the experience that Paul, uh, sorry, that Peter had and a vision that he also received. A cloak came down from heaven filled with what the Jews found to be uh, unclean animals. And a voice said to Peter, take up and eat. Three times over, Peter saw this vision. While he was 
reflecting upon this vision, those who were sent by Cornelius came knocking on Peter's door. And thus the second day. The third day actually only takes up half a verse. The second half of chapter, uh, sorry, of verse 23 of chapter 10. Describing for us the journey that Peter, together with six individuals, took with these who were sent from Cornelius, from Caesarea Philippi. And then the fourth day, the last day there in chapter 10, begins with verse 24 and goes right through the end of the chapter. Four days. Four days that transformed missions. Well, there's much we can talk about in those four days, but I want to draw your attention to three things that I believe were very, very significant Not only for the New Testament church, but I think equally, brothers and sisters, they are significant for us here in the 21st century. I want you to first of all notice together with me that in these some 66 verses, we're reminded first of all of a salvation to share. A salvation to share. Notice as we already read there in chapter 11, verse 14. Luke describing, sorry, uh, Peter rehashing or recounting the event tells us that Luke, uh, Cornelius sent for him. There in verse 13, it says, send to Joppa and have Simon, who was also called Peter, brought here. And then notice what he says in verse 14. And he, that is Peter, will speak words to you by which you will be saved. Notice that word. That Peter will save, say words to you. He will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. There was a salvation to share. A salvation to share. It's interesting as I've gone back to reflect upon these four days, especially in chapter 10. It's been interesting to see, to note, how Luke introduces Cornelius to us. I wonder if you've also noticed it as well. Actually, if you have your Bibles with with you, just turn very quickly, would you, to the 10th chapter and, and notice with me several verses in which we have quite a description of Cornelius. For instance, there in verse 2 of chapter 10, after describing Cornelius as being a centurion in what was called the Italian cohort, Luke in chapter, in verse 2 goes on, uh, chapter 10 tells us a bit of who Cornelius was. And what does he say? He tells us that, first of all, Cornelius was a devout man. He was a very religious person, a very spiritual person. He was one who feared God. Not only did he fear God, but his influence, his devoutness, his reverence for God also impacted his family so that his whole family was also God-fearing. Notice that his Christian faith, I shouldn't say his Christian faith, but his faith or his religion also was translated into action. For we're told also that he gave many alms to the Jewish people, something of perhaps what we did this morning, in a sense. And then Luke tells us that he prayed to God continually. 
Well, actually, if you were to read down further into this chapter, you will read uh, at several occasions where uh, similar descriptions are given to Cornelius. For instance, in verse 4, when the angel appeared to Cornelius, Cornelius says, what is it, Lord? And then notice what the angel said to Cornelius. This messenger said to Cornelius, your prayers, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And as I noted that, I was struck with the fact that in spite, despite all of Cornelius's, if I could use the word religiosity, he still needed to hear the message of salvation. Peter still had to go to Cornelius's house to tell Cornelius and his family of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That brings us, of course, I believe, to a very central truth in the Christian faith. And it is simply this, that we believe that no one is so bad that they can't be saved. No one is so bad that they can't be saved. No matter what your background might be, what matter, no matter what my background might be, we would speak with assurance to anybody that as long as we confess our sins, as John tells us there in his first epistle, that as long as we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. No one is so bad they need not be saved. But I would want to put before you quickly that there is another side to that equation, and simply it is this. No one is so good they need not be saved. No one is so good that they need not be saved. There was a salvation to share. Yes, even with Cornelius. We would say that the Samaritan woman of John chapter 4 needed salvation. After all, look at her life. But let us not forget that actually Nicodemus in John chapter 3 also needed to be born again. No one is so bad that they can't be saved, but no one is so good that they need not be saved. Now I realize that that truth that we find so fundamental in Scripture is not something that is looked upon fondly in the generation that we find ourselves, often described as post-modernity. And within post-modernity, where truth is all relativized, as it relates to religion, there is a, a theme that runs through post-modernity that it really doesn't make any difference what you believe in because after all, all roads eventually lead to Rome. That Jesus Christ was not the way, he was merely a way. Jesus Christ was not the truth, he was merely a truth. Jesus Christ was not the life, he was merely a life. But it would seem to me, brothers and sisters, as we come to this event, the Cornelius event, we're reminded first of all, that there is a salvation to share. And Cornelius and his family needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ.
And I will put before you that that same mandate is before us as well. Whether it be near or whether it be far. As OMF serves, some of you might be familiar that we primarily work in East Asia as well as among East Asians scattered in different parts of the world. Over these last several years, the Lord has one, opened up a wonderful opportunity actually for us to partner together with the Kenya church. For there in the capital city of Nairobi, a, a, a pastor saw the Chinese that were coming by the plane loads to work in not only Kenya, but right across Africa, right across the continent. Statistics tell us that there are probably well over 3 million Chinese in Africa. 3 million Chinese in Africa. Most of them well outside of the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this weighed heavily upon this Kenyan pastor. He did not know how to speak Chinese. He did not know the Chinese culture. And so he, in, he came to OMF, given that the CIM must know a little bit about the Chinese. After all, you've worked with them for 150 years. And he invited us to come and partner together with a Kenyan church to reach out to the Chinese right there in Nairobi, right there in Kenya. And I'll never forget what that pastor said to our colleagues. It was simply this, that his desire is that those Chinese, as they went to Africa, they would not receive the curse of AIDS, perhaps indication of their morals, that they would not receive the curse of AIDS, but rather they would receive the blessing of salvation. And it's been a joy to work together with this Kenyan pastor. Sensing there is a salvation to share. Incidentally, I just had a chance to meet our colleagues who are serving there. And actually, the Nairobi police station called our colleagues and said, Look, we have Chinese prisoners here. We don't know how to speak Chinese, and they don't know how to speak English or Kenyan. Can you please come to the prison twice a week to help us translate for them? And while you are here, can you please share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these Chinese in prison? A salvation to share. A salvation to share. If I could use a phrase that my great-great-grandfather often referred to as he thought of those 350 million Chinese in China. As I mentioned, most of them in the inland parts of China, outside of the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He often referred to them as the a million a month racing to a Christless eternity. A million Chinese a month stepped into a Christless eternity. And the impetus Hudson Taylor felt so strongly was upon the church to take the gospel. For there is a salvation to share. Could I say it again? No one is so bad they can't be saved. And yet, no one is so good that they need not be saved. Send for Peter. 
for he has a message through which you and your household shall be saved. And so, first of all, a salvation to share. A salvation to share. Secondly, actually, if we go back over these 66 verses, another theme that I believe comes out very strongly is that there was a commission to comply. Not only a salvation to share, but also a commission to comply. We don't have the time, but if you go back and look at these 66 verses, two themes come out, at least in my mind, very clearly with regard to a commission to comply. The first is this word vision. It's interesting that Cornelius had a vision and Peter had a vision. But I think their similarities ended there because it's interesting that Cornelius, the Gentile, Cornelius, the person who had no previous contact with Jesus Christ, I wonder if you've ever noticed how immediate his response was to that commission of going to Joppa to find Peter. It was immediate. There was no hesitation. There was no wondering, what exactly are you saying to me, God? Rather, this Gentile responded immediately to the vision that was given to him. I don't know if Luke had tongue-in-cheek in describing these two people and their responses to God's vision, but it's interesting, at least to me, and I don't know, maybe I just have a vivid imagination. But it's interesting to me that Cornelius' response was immediate, while Peter's response was one of tremendous hesitation. You would have thought it would have been the exact opposite. And yet it wasn't. The one that should have responded so immediate, Peter, was the one who was struggling, the one who was wondering, wrestling, doubting about the vision that he received. We don't have time this morning, but I've always been intrigued by the threes in Peter's life. I wonder if you've noticed how many threes are in Peter's life. For instance, if we were to go back into the Gospels, it seems that at three different occasions, Jesus summons Peter to follow him. We're familiar, of course, with Peter three times uh, denying the Lord Jesus. We're also very familiar with the three times that uh, Jesus asked Peter there in John chapter 21, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Probably less known are two other threes in Peter's life. One is the three times that Peter said no to his Lord. The first time was in in Matthew chapter 16, you remember, where Jesus foretold his crucifixion and Peter immediately stopped Jesus and said, Lord, that will never happen to you. The second time that Peter said no to the Lord was when in John chapter 13, we read of Peter uh, or Jesus wanting to wash Peter's feet. And you remember that he said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And then the third time is the passage that is before us. And so that's the three no's in Peter's life. Uh, But the, the other three that I enjoy thinking about are the three times we're told of Peter falling asleep. 
And uh, that will be a comfort for any of you who are falling asleep while I'm preaching because uh, let me just say very quickly, uh, if Peter could fall asleep on those three occasions, it's, it's, it's a very easy task to fall asleep when Jamie Taylor is preaching. The first time Peter fell asleep, you remember, was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Can you imagine that? Jesus manifesting himself in all of his glory. What does Peter do? He's sleeping. The second time Peter fell asleep is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus invites his disciples to pray. And what does Peter do? He falls asleep. I don't know. If you have problems with insomnia, maybe that's a good cure for insomnia. Not sleeping pills, but trying to, trying to pray. And probably you'll fall asleep then. Of course, the third time we're told of Peter sleeping is in Acts chapter, 11, uh, chapter 12. What a wonderful picture. James was martyred, you remember. Herod arrested Peter and was prepared to kill him. And Luke tells us that the night before Peter was killed, or to be killed, do you remember what Peter was doing in prison? Oh, what a wonderful picture. What a wonderful picture. That even death, even the facing of death could not rob Peter of the peace that he had in his heart. What a wonderful picture of the Christian faith, is it not? That nothing, as Mimi has reminded us in that song, nothing can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, a vision. Well, the second word, obviously, is this word sent. And if you had the chance to actually read through these 66 verses, you will find that this word sent, actually Luke uses several different Greek words, but it actually appears some 14 times in this chapter. And so we're reminded of a commission to comply. A commission to comply. I've brought a very special book with me this morning to show you. It was the first book that my great-great-grandfather wrote. He went to China as a missionary in 1853. It took him 163 days to get from Liverpool, England to Shanghai, China. If we were to fly from Heathrow to China today, it would take us about 12 hours, maybe 13. And so what those early missionaries took nearly half a year to do, you and I can do in half a day. And I've often wondered what those early missionaries would think of the generation that you and I live in, the convenience of transportation, and how that should, well, how it has, but how it should even more facilitate the Great Commission, the fulfillment of the Great Commission of Jesus. Incidentally, there was no such thing as short-term missions back 150 years ago. He came back to England, or he went back to England in 1860. And the Lord laid upon his heart to write this very small book. There were 3,000 copies printed, and they were sold out in a matter of two to three weeks. The title of this book is a very interesting title. It's simply this, China, its spiritual need and claims. China, its spiritual need 
Hudson Taylor saw the only need, the only spiritual need that China had was Jesus Christ. And yet he also saw the claims that that need had upon our lives as well. That we were responsible, that there was a commission. Hudson Taylor said that the great commission of Jesus Christ is not an option to be considered, but rather it is a command to be followed. Not an option. It is not just for the few within the church, perhaps who are uh, a bit more zealous about missions to be involved in, but rather it is for all of us. to be engaged in, whether that might be through prayer, whether that might be through the giving of our resources, or the actual participation of short-term missions or or long-term missions. And the prayer of my heart this morning, brothers and sisters, that for Knox Church, missions would not be just relegated to the few, but that we as a community of faith, each and every one of us, would be mobilized for missions, to be engaged in missions. Incidentally, let me just quickly add that we don't have to get on a plane to be involved in missions in the 21st century. Missions, my friends, brothers and sisters, is not out there only. It is out there, but it is not out there only. Why? Because migration has brought the mission field to our very doorstep. And as I reflected upon that, I was struck with this fact that the proximity of the mission field tests our sincerity for the mission field. Let me just say that again. The proximity of the mission field tests our sincerity for the mission field. It's easy to say I have a vision and a burden for China. Thank God China is so far away. And yet God has brought the Chinese to our shores. God has brought the Chinese to our city. God has brought the Chinese to our neighborhood. The proximity of the mission field tests our sincerity. And the same could be said of the African world. The same could be said of the Hindu world. The same could be said of uh, the, the, the Muslim world. The proximity of the mission field tests our sincerity for the mission field. And so he spoke of these claims that were upon us, that there is a commission to comply. Before turning just very quickly and lastly to my third point, I want to pause there for a moment. Because I thought of that commission to comply, a question came into my mind, and it was simply this. Did Peter know what would happen when he went to Cornelius' house? Did he know, did he know what was going to happen when he went to Cornelius' house? I'm actually convinced that he didn't have a clue. He did not have a clue. It was only as he stepped into Cornelius' house and began to preach, and, and that was one of the most amazing sermons in the New Testament. Actually, Peter never finished the sermon. You go back and read it. He got right in the middle, and maybe some of you are wishing Jamie Taylor's sermon would be cut short in the same way. The Holy Spirit descended upon 
those people, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter never finished his sermon. And this is what I was struck with, that God did not wait until Peter had it all together before he began to use him. And in fact, what we can say is only as Peter went that he grew in his understanding of what God's purpose and intentions are. It was as we go, brothers and sisters, if I could use this phrase, it is only as we go that we will grow. And if we don't go, it is pretty hard to grow. A commission to comply. Well, very quickly and lastly, not only a salvation to share, not only a commission to comply. I want us to notice, lastly, that there was a threshold to traverse. There was a threshold to traverse. Peter had to step over a threshold. And incidentally, if you thought that was an easy task, go on and read the chapter, chapter 11, and you'll notice very quickly that that was a tremendous thing for Peter to do, to actually set foot in the house of a Gentile. We don't have time, unfortunately, this morning to look at that in more detail. But I believe that today, perhaps you and I are also facing a threshold that we need to traverse. In my experience, especially if you would allow me to speak into the Chinese church, actually the Chinese church, one of our thresholds, if I can use that phrase, one of our thresholds is cross-cultural missions. The Chinese church is very good at reaching out to its own people. And perhaps that is one of the unseen glass ceilings and glass walls of ethnic churches is because there is a danger of them becoming ethnocentric in their church ministry. And so they only reach out to Chinese. And, and one of the things that I have over and over again in, in the opportunities that I have had to speak in Chinese churches is to challenge the Chinese church to break out of that ethnocentrism and have an impact not only on Chinese. Certainly, that is a role that they are called to play, but it's beyond that, certainly. And it's a wonderful joy to worship here at Knox Church and, and see the diversity of ethnicity that the Lord has graced this church with. Praise God. But there might be other thresholds in our lives that we need to traverse today. As I was preparing, I thought of one. And that was the threshold of this church building. And what I mean by that is our Christian faith should not be confined to the four walls of Knox Church. We will leave this church today. We will step across a threshold into the world that you and I live in. And my prayer, brothers and sisters, is that as we step across the threshold of this church back into our lives this coming week, that, that we will take the gospel of Jesus Christ with us, that we will take our faith in Jesus Christ with us into our homes, into our relationships with our families, into our schools, our relationships with our classmates, 
amongst our colleagues at work, in the neighborhoods that God has placed us. And perhaps today that is a threshold that you need to step over. Even in today, as you go home and, and the Lord brings your, across your path somebody who, who you know or somebody that lives perhaps in your complex or in your apartment building. And there is a threshold that you and I need to step over. I think of another threshold. And that is, how are our lives being spent? Is it for earthly success alone? Or is there a desire that there might be eternal significance to our lives? Not just earthly success. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with earthly success. But if our lives are only for the pursuit of earthly success, may the Lord have mercy. Instead, may we be about eternal significance. Well, perhaps there are other thresholds that you face. And I pray that the Lord will give you boldness as he gave Peter to step over those thresholds. And so there was a salvation to share. There was a commission to comply. And then there was a threshold to traverse. Four days that transformed missions. And I pray that the Lord and his transforming power would be all the more at work. Not only in our individual lives, but in the life of this the church that he has placed in the center of Toronto. May he not only transform this church, but may he enable this church also to become even more transformational in this city, in this country, and to the other ends of the world. Father, we thank you for these moments that we have had in your word. Lord, we thank you for the record of those four days that transformed Peter, that transformed the New Testament church. And Lord, I would pray that just as Peter and the New Testament church was transformed, that each and every one of our lives, Lord, here today, would also be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak into our lives, Father. Lord, we're reminded afresh of a salvation that needs to be shared. No one is so bad that they can't be saved, and yet no one is so good that they need not be saved. Father, we've been reminded of a commission to comply. That the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, but rather a command to be followed. And so, Father, help us to be found faithful in obeying that great commission. And Lord, for all of us, I pray indeed that you would give us the courage and enable us to traverse whatever threshold that might be in our lives, that we might be found obedient. 
Lord, again, I commit Knox Church into your hand. Pastor and the pastoral staff, Lord, may you continue even more so to not only transform this church, but make this church transformational. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.